Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we are coming to you with some real political news and political earthquake in New York City. Uh, stunning in, in every way. Uh, I, I'm struck by this win uh, by Alexandria Casio Cor- uh, cortez on a couple of different levels. Of course, beating a member of House leadership, a big deal in a primary. Hasn't happened in a while on the Democratic side. Beating uh, the boss. Beating the boss the of the Queen's boss. Democratic Party. Uh, beating a man who might have been the next Speaker of the House and himself is referred to as a rising star. Imagine this. He is 56 years old, a generation younger than Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn. And guess what? He lost to someone half his age who spent one-tenth of the money that that he spent, who had never run for political office before. Um, A a young and vibrant presence that has now announced herself on the political scene and become a brand-new star uh, in a a heavily Democratic district is now on track to be the youngest ever woman elected to Congress. Just a stunning story. Making history. And and she seemed almost... Speechless uh, when, when, when the news came down. Uh, take a listen to her initial reaction. Can you put it into words? Nope. <laughs> I cannot put this into words. All right. And here's how she described her victory. I think what we've seen is that working class Americans want a clear champion, and there is nothing radical about moral clarity in 2018. Uh, it's truly, uh, truly a, a stunning victory and a big victory, of course for the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Now, Bernie didn't directly get involved in this race, but she was a former Bernie Sanders organizer. This was the progressive, some might say radical wing of the Democratic Party, again, flexing some serious muscle. Indeed, it also represents demographic shifts. Joe Crowley's Queens is a lot different than the Queens of of 2018 uh, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, majority minority in that district now, and of course generational. And to me, it it speaks to the larger trends. It's not just that incumbents have to worry about the winds of change. It's that there's a a great desire out there for something new, something fresh, uh, and, and it's coursing through politics in both parties. It's telling that in this year of uh, of the resistance and the anti-Trump movement to that uh, a member of Democratic leadership goes down like this. Uh, we remember Eric Cantor going down four years ago. Uh, it seemed to um, be the leading edge of, of another Tea Party wave. The, kind of the wave was, was cresting at that time. Uh, we've been looking for a Tea Party of the left. It's a little late in primary season to, to say that there's going to be tons more incumbents who go down, but it is a strong, strong signal. Uh, uh, and you start to look at all these Democrats who are lining up, some of the combat veterans, female candidates, first-time candidates, and it is an impressive array and a much different cast of characters than you normally see in politics. Uh, absolutely. And uh, the president seemed to uh, relish in this uh, in this result uh, in the defeat of Joe Crowley. Guy remember, from Queens. <laughs> remember the president's from Queens. This was well, not he's not from this district, but but right next door. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that the president, tweeting about it, suggested. No, no, he didn't suggest. He asserted that if Crowley had been friendlier to his president and treated his president with more respect, he might have won. I, 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 I don't. I. Don't think he lost because he was too mean to Donald Trump. Do he you? Should, he's wrong about that, uh, he, and he should meet Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. <laughs> yeah, uh, essentially, essentially running a, a campaign against uh, Crowley. Then part said, 
you got to be tougher. You got to be more progressive. You have to you have to show what you really believe in. As as she said in that in that clip a moment ago, nothing radical about moral clarity, and that it's that kind of clarity that she brought to it in knocking on doors and talking to people and surfacing her story with a viral uh, campaign video. All of that uh, all of that fueled the most unlikely of victories. And as you pointed out, the other very significant thing is she took a very unusual step in the days before the election, in the days before the primary. She left the district and went thousands of miles away. Where did she go? She went to the El Paso area, one of the detention centers that's been all over television. Uh, she made it known that this was a major priority for her as a uh, someone of Puerto Rican descent. She felt like it was important to highlight this and this this struggle among among immigrants, this national storyline. Um, she also uh, showed up at a debate where Crowley that Crowley skipped. <laughs> uh, I, I always think that's a mistake. By yeah, the way, we, we we we've been over this. The uh, the the front running candidate is the one that almost always doesn't want to engage in debates or limit the number of debates or not have any debates at all. And I can't tell you how many of these big upset losses that I've covered over the years have featured one, and I'm not saying this was decisive at all in this yeah. race, but but I you know would be surprised if it were not a factor, where the uh, you know the front runner's trying to run out the clock and refusing to debate uh, the challenger. And it's frankly it's an insult to the voters. It's saying, because this isn't a close race, you don't deserve a chance to, uh, you know, to hear the two engage. Mm-hmm. One, one guy who had a very interesting approach to this over the years was a, um, a senator from Massachusetts. I don't know if you remember him. Edward Moore Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teddy Kennedy, uh, you know, he had a very tough first race. He had a lot of easy races um, up there in Massachusetts. He always debated uh, his challenger, even when it was like a ridiculous race the, 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 where there wasn't going to be much. I remember of a running race. against a, a guy named Jack E. Robinson, J- and he uh, and he debated Jackie Robinson, right? Jack E. Robinson debated against him. He also debated Mitt Romney. It's you know, it's, it, it, he was that he was, he was, was confident in his own political skills in that moment, and I, I think respecting the yeah. the, the voters, the, it, the, it, the it's process. a matter of respect. Yes. Yes, a debate is part of the process. Yeah, I think that's right, and 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 I think that the lesson for incumbent politicians across the board is to not lose that kind of touch with your district, even if that district changes. It's possible to keep your job, of course, in a low turnout uh, environment like this. Uh, the the energy, the grassroots energy, the enthusiasm is real. What do we know about the turnout? Oh, abysmally low. I mean, it, it, one one issue is that you know in New York they split the federal and state primaries, so the primary for governor uh, is in September. It's so odd. It's Why a, do they do w- that? Total waste. Total waste. Total waste of money. It's a it's a throwback to another era. It, you know, it's usually used to protect the state politicians a bit for, uh, because it gives them it gives their challenger less time to ramp up. So you have to wait a little while for for Cynthia Nixon's. But it, but it's, it, yeah, abysmally low tor- turnout, and that, you take advantage of that. Now you often say in that okay, the machine will come through. Uh, maybe one big lesson is there is no machine anymore. It just doesn't. It, it doesn't exist. You don't get to just hand seats off to the the favorite people. Well, there's a different kind of machine. I right. mean, it's, machine, uh, that's right. We're seeing because because part of the machine, machine is is is, yeah. is is generating turnout, is getting the you know, yeah. but 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 that's that's not what we're seeing here. I that's mean. right. That's right. And it and it and it and it and it rubs up against a time where President Trump is building a machine of his own. Uh, starting to get a little more involved or a lot more involved in, in primaries. He's been doing quite a few campaign events. He got his favorite candidate uh, out of uh, uh, out of the governor's race in South Carolina. He also prevented Michael Grimm from winning the nomination uh, right there in Staten Island. You know, okay, I, so I, I have to say, so these are portrayed as big victories for the president. <laughs> I congratulate him. He endorsed two candidates in, in, in the primaries uh, uh, on Tuesday night. 
Um, they both won. One was the incumbent governor of South Carolina, won the primary to run as governor of South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know. Okay. That's one. Uh, and then the other was the incumbent House member from uh, from Staten Island winning a primary to run again as the Repu- for Republican congressman from Staten Island. He was running up against a convicted felon. Yeah, there's that. Okay. I mean, is this... a I mean, you know, yeah, it, it tempered the victories a bit. But 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 uh, but enough uh, enough of all of that because we are now joined. Uh, we're very very happy to be joined by the big victor, uh, Ms. Acacia Cortez. Thank you for joining us, Alexandria. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, congratulations! That uh, I say, I have to say was a stunning uh, victory. Surprised. A heck of a lot of people, and judging from the reaction that we all saw of you on television, it seemed to surprise you as well. It did. You know, I wasn't even checking the election results at all. I wasn't even following the precincts coming in. We had driven straight to our little party at a little billiard spot in the Bronx, and we hopped in, and I just kind of walked into a TV set, and I looked at the screen, and I saw not only the numbers, but what those numbers were, and it was a complete shock. So what what does this? I mean, only we've been talking about what this means for the Democratic Party going forward, what it means for the progressive movement, for what some might call the Bernie Sanders wing of the uh, of the Democratic Party. In your words, what 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 does your victory mean beyond the fact that you are very likely to be heading to Congress next year? Well, I think what it means is that working class Americans are ready and willing and eager to hear a message of economic, social, and racial justice and a plan. And to and I think that really bold legislation resonates with working class Americans. I think that this is about weaving in an intersectional message of economic and social uh, of an economic and social agenda that is going to ensure that families are safe and also can can prosper economically not just in the years to come, but but for future generations as well. And that when we're unafraid to to provide a very bold plan and we're unafraid to commit to really strong ideas, uh, people will turn out and people will resonate with that. And I've looked at a little bit of the of the campaign literature you've put out and some of the platforms you run on, and, and there's a lot of bold ideas in there. It's not mm-hmm. just universal health care you talk about, but universal employment abolishing ICE. I'm curious on that, what you'd replace it with. And also, if you think it's realistic to, to say, yeah, we can we can actually guarantee a free education to everyone. We can guarantee health care well, to everyone. We can ad- guarantee the job to everyone. Yeah, I do think that absolutely this is possible. You know, this, this, uh, this platform was not generated out of the blue. I consulted with United States chief economists, folks like Stephanie Kelton, who is the chief economist of the United States Senate, to actually figure out how this stuff works. It is absolutely possible. Um, As far as the abolishment of ICE, you know, I think it speaks to the nature of ICE that we forget that this agency is very new. It was just established in 2003 during the Patriot Act, the Iraq War, the AUMF. And we look at that entire suite of legislation right now as a mistake in our history. And I think right now what we're seeing especially on the borders, that we're realizing that ICE was, in fact, perhaps a part of that mistake. We had an immigration system before then, and I think looking towards the future, we can find a way for people to safely enter this country and be documented and not have to experience the the continued injustice of, of the separation of families at our border. 
So one thing I'm struck by, one of my favorite factoids about this race, is that you just beat someone who's often re been referred to as a rising star in the Democratic Party. He happens to be twice your age. And the reason yeah. he's referred to as a rising star is that the generation of leadership now, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, James Clyburn, the three people that outrank him, are all in their late 70s. Yeah. Feeling this generational yeah, yeah. shift going on right now, who do you think the next Democratic House Speaker should be? You know, I'm, I just don't even think that, this, that, that I can even answer that question until we win in November. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's really just the end of it. I, I'm just going to cross that bridge when I get to it. <laughs> do you need to see generational change in leadership as well? I do. I think that we need more young people in office now more than ever before. I think that, uh, you know, millennials, they think of us as punk kids, but we're in our late 20s. We're in our 30s. And, um, and, you know, we are the ones that are going to have to deal with climate change, with automation, with a changing economy. And we deserve to have a seat at the table. We're the largest uh, electorate right now. And I think all of that stuff is incredibly important to be represented in Congress. So let, let, let me talk to you about another bridge that you uh, will have to cross. Where do you stand on the impeachment of Donald Trump? And, and those like uh, Tom Steyer out there are saying that... Uh, that, that w Democrats need to begin the process, taking over the House, uh, need to begin the process very soon of, of impeaching the president? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm supportive. You know, I think that he has serious violations of the emoluments clause, um, among, you know, among other very large concerns. And, uh, and I think that it's time, especially the fact that what we're seeing, is, especially like what we're seeing in, in what's happening in our border and uh, the the increased, you know, militarization and, and, and willingness to commit human rights abuses. I, we are at that point. You know, it's unfortunate, but I believe that we are at that point. And he should be impeached. Yes. I'm curious, the, your decision to go down to the, to, the, to the border outside El Paso to look at one of these camps, what drove that? Was it, was it strategic from a messaging standpoint? And what did you take away from that visit? No, no. You know, it was, I was, I received the invitation and the call to come down from several uh, activist groups and organizations um, like Voto Latino and Raices Texas. And I received that, that call almost as soon as the practice of child separation and, and detention camp, camps began. And I just felt like we are at a crisis for the, we are at, we are at, at, at a crisis um, a moral crisis it's for the character of our nation. And I don't feel like in moments like these, we can afford to wait for a time that is convenient. Uh, we have to respond immediately when human rights abuses are happening on our soil and in our name. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even a question. It was, it was just a matter of how I get down there. So I know you have to go. One last question, uh, looking ahead in New York, do you see a similar upset coming in the New York primary for governor? Is Andrew Cuomo going to go down? I mean, I think what what this race has really shown is that anything is possible. Um, it's really just about the commitment to grassroots organizing and knocking on doors. And, you know, I just hope that... Um, you know, again, like anything, anything is possible. No, I mean, you just look at last night, and if anything that last night proves is that no, you know, 
there there is no such thing as being unassailable in America. <laughs> I hope you know for now in our democracy. So right. it, you know, it's and the people who do the work can you do the work, and if you do it right, you can get it done. And, and I saw Cynthia Nixon was there with you last night. I, I assume you fully support her effort to defeat Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, you know, um, I was I, I was really honored that she came in and. Um, in a time when nobody was going to acknowledge my existence, for the most part, folks like her and, and Zephyr Teachout stepped up to recognize um, my candidacy as legitimate. And I think that, you know, that speaks to a greater uh, trend as well of women in politics, where I feel like a lot of times, in particular, the women have a harder time being seen as legitimate. Um, you know, I received, we received, like, pretty, uh, the media coverage of my race was very sparse until the very, very end. And uh, it takes folks like Zephyr Teachout, and it takes endorsements and moves like what Cynthia Nixon did uh, to say, you know what, we make each other legitimate. We make each other legitimate by by deciding that we are and respecting each other. And so I have a profound amount of respect. Um, and, you know, the day before the election, uh, Cynthia and I did, did co-endorse one another because we felt like that's what needed to be done. All right. Well, congratulations, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. A huge, huge uh, upset victory in, uh, in New York. We appreciate you coming on and talking to us uh, the morning after here on Power House Politics. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, I thought that was it. Wasn't exactly a enthusiastic endorsement. Yeah, of, so. uh, it was. You know, kind of supporting her because she was supporting me. Yeah, yeah. It was um, a, a, a co endorsement thing. And I, I, there's lessons certainly for New York State. Cuomo's got to be worried about. It's got to be worried. What's right? going to happen? And but he's seen it come, and he has more yeah, time to prepare right. for it than uh, than Crowley did. I think that's right. I mean, I look, and I think I think a lot of this is I mean, we talk about these someone runs for office uh, and expect typical political answers maybe is a more realistic assessment we just got from alexandria there but th- and this is history i mean this th- this is a woman that that um, you know no in the in the 200 plus years of this republic no woman in her 20s has ever been elected to congress yeah, just it's lots of men 100 plus men have been elected as as very young going back to the 1700s actually yeah. but it's never happened for a woman before and uh, you look at the the this there's a couple of 20 somethings that are running uh, as democrats this year female democrats uh, and you look at people like her and it's it's just a, a story that is very relatable for a lot of voters and it's the kind of classic american story of getting involved classic all right we got to take a quick break when we come back we're going to go in a slightly different direction i believe that we will have on the line the former speaker of the house newt gingrich brought to you by indeed used by over three million businesses for hiring where business owners and hr professionals can post job openings with screener questions then sort review and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard learn more at indeed.com slash hire there's a lot coming at you right now turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. All right, and joining us now is the former 
congressman from the 6th Congressional District of Georgia, uh, the husband of the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the Holy See, also the author of a new book called Trump's America, The Truth About Our Nation's Great Comeback, and also I think he was Speaker of the House at one point and ran for president, Mr. Newt Gingrich. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you guys. How are you doing? We're doing great. I guess this is book number 38 or so, which is uh, roughly... Something like that. 38 more books than you've written, Rick? <laughs> exactly. <Is> that... <laughs> roughly. Um, <laughs> um, hey, so I, I want to talk to you... Yeah, but you guys you guys, you guys, guys are young. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're not as young as we used to be, Mr. Speaker. Um, so... Uh, well, that's, that's true, too. <laughs> um, I, uh, although to quote Bob Dylan, I was uh, younger than I'm older than that now. Or uh, the reverse, right? I was, uh, I was older than I'm younger than that now. So uh, I, I, wanted, I wanted to start um, with kind of a uh, – first of all, I want to get to the incredible news that we saw coming out of New York uh, with uh, a major Democratic upset uh, in, 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 the, in the primary in Queens. Uh, but – on on President Trump, um, you write a glowing review in this book of of his uh, of the first part of his uh, of his presidency. Um, I want to get at something though that um, I, I imagine has to trouble you uh, at least a bit uh, about the president, and that is his propensity to say things that simply are not true. What 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 what? What do you make of that tendency? And, and, th- and doesn't that kind of erosion of, of credibility trouble you? I mean, he says, you know, the, the Washington Post has the account well over a thousand uh, uh, mistruths so far. Um, and, 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 you know, he just, he just often says things that, that just are not true. What, why, why is that? And, and does that trouble you? Well, look, I, I think that he is the least professional politician type person we've had in the White House, uh, certainly in modern times, and maybe you have to go all the way back to Andrew Jackson to find a parallel. Uh, so he doesn't have any of the normal habits or normal patterns. He's, in a lot of ways, what you have is a business CEO who wanders around and says things uh, without much fact-checking on occasion uh, and uh, you know, often ends up... Um, saying things you can catch him on. But but I, I remember, <clears throat> for example, Reagan's first inaugural, he quoted from a soldier who had died in World War One, and Reagan asserted that he was buried across the river, um, and in fact he was buried in Wisconsin. And the amount of coverage that got, because Reagan obviously wasn't factually always accurate. I mean, there there's some parallels. I can, you can go back. Trump does it on a much bigger scale than Reagan did. But this, you know, they, they they both have a tendency to say general directions that are powerful with details that are dubious. But but doesn't, isn't credibility important? I mean, to, to be able to trust that the information you're getting out of the White House is sure. accurate. Look, I mean, I mean, if, if you want to critique Trump, that's fine. The, the, the fact is, um, he has weaknesses. Uh, but he also has enormous strengths, and so far at least, the enormous strengths seem to be outweighing the weaknesses. Uh, his base of support seems very stable. His impact in the Republican Party is astonishing. He's probably stronger in the Republican Party than Reagan was, certainly statistically based on polling data. Uh, you saw evidence in the last couple of days in places like South Carolina and Staten Island 
of the impact of Trump. You saw the impact in Duluth, Minnesota, which 20 years ago you would have thought it impossible to get 9,000 people uh, in a rally for a Republican president, and then to get them chanting uh, Space Force, Space Force, which I thought was, you know, pretty astonishing. So what you have here is a guy who has very great strengths and some areas that, that could be improved and may or may not be. We'll find out. I'm, I'm, I'm less sanguine than I was a year ago <clears throat> that he's going to change much because, you know, he, he basically emphasizes his strengths and ignores his weaknesses rather than trying to fix his weaknesses. I, I want to have Rick jump in here, but, but just one other thing. on the, the great strength was supposed to be Trump, the deal maker, uh, the guy that this was his self you know uh, what he how he described his his uh, his great strength. I want to read you just just a paragraph from a piece from from Peter Baker, um, looking at the first seventeen months in office and fact checking this notion of the art of the deal. So this is this is Peter Baker. No deal on immigration, no deal on health care, no deal on gun control, no deal on spending cuts, no deal on NAFTA, no deal on China trade, no deal on steel and aluminum imports, no deal on Middle East peace, no deal on the Qatar blockade, no deal on Syria, no deal on Russia, no deal on Iran, no deal on climate change, no deal on Pacific trade. And Peter Baker's telling, which I think is pretty accurate here, that the one place that there was a big deal was the tax cut which was largely negotiated by congressional leadership. And as Peter points out, coming up with a deal on cutting taxes without compensating with spending cuts is not exactly a, uh, the heaviest of heavy lifts. Trump, Trump sets very large goals and is relentless in moving towards them. And I think modulates a lot more than people realize uh, and, and constantly absorbs information. And it's changing. I mean, if you go back and look at the meeting in Riyadh with 57 countries orchestrated by the Saudis, uh, that has to have been as amazing a breakthrough as anything we have seen uh, in terms of the Middle East. And in the process, what's, what's pretty clear is that Trump and his team have communicated that they're going to put together an anti-Iranian coalition uh, the UAE and the Saudis are a key part of it, the Egyptians and the Jordanians. And by the way, all four of them tolerated moving the embassy to Jerusalem with virtually no dissent. And at that level, he's actually moving to shape a different Middle East. Now, it doesn't fit the standard establishment definition, but, but it's real and it, I think increasingly powerful. And there's a great deal of, of cooperative activity now between Israel and all four of those countries, and they have, you know, they're, they're orchestrating around a common enemy. Um, that that's just an example. I think on North Korea, you have to say that the, the jury's out. I mean, the North Koreans have so cheerfully lied to American presidents for 20 years. There's no automatic reason to believe that a meeting in Singapore changes much. But I, I think, uh, on the other hand, they have gotten Kim Jong Un doing some things he had never contemplated before. And I think we have to watch over the next few months to see how it evolves. And Trump has certainly assembled uh, between John Kelly and uh, Jim Mattis and, and uh, Mike Pompeo, probably <clears throat> as tough a group of, of senior people as you can imagine in national security. And then he has a, a guy who, by any reasonable standard, is a, is a very solid uh, hawk uh, in John Bolton as national security advisor. So. He's, he's, he is seeking to develop things on his terms in ways where I would argue that the jury's still out. 
And in terms of the kind of deals Peter Baker wants, you know, I'm glad he didn't try to get a deal with Chuck Schumer. Well, there's, there's no deal he's going to get on gun control that any conservative wants. Uh, there's no deal that Schumer would give him an immigration that any conservative wants. Uh, they failed on on, uh, on, the, on the whole issue of taking apart Obamacare through the Congress, but they've come back with Secretary Azar and have done a remarkably good job of maximizing change using the, the power of the executive branch at a time when the Congress is just plain dysfunctional. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure you can blame Trump for the Congress being as dysfunctional as it currently is. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not Pollyannish about this. I, look, I think there are significant weaknesses. I think some of them uh, probably are fixable if they would take the time to do it. Uh, but on balance, I think if you look at whether it's getting conservatives on the courts where he's done far better than, than George W. Bush and Obama combined, or if you look at deregulation where he clearly has set a historic record on a scale that would have been unthinkable three years ago, uh, there are a number of places where he is changing the whole equation and he's changing the terms of debate. It's a, it's a non-trivial achievement. Mr. Speaker, you 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 referenced those the the scene at the rallies and the the chance of space force, which I'm sure you're particularly interested in. Uh, something Bob Corker said recently that really struck a nerve, I think, with a lot of people was is the, the comparison of the Republican Party now is is exhibiting cultish behavior around Trump. Is it do you do you buy into that comparison? And is it is it healthy for the Republican Party? to have adopted an ideology that's essentially Trumpism, uh, where you can't really stray from this president. And a president, I think you would concede, has redefined what it means to be conservative. Well, no, look, I've always said that Trump is not essentially a conservative. Trump is an anti-liberal. Uh, they're not the same phenomena. But he may be the most effective uprooter of liberalism in my lifetime. So the fact that he does it just because he's anti-liberal, I, you know, I don't require him to read National Review each week. Um, you know, I'm not looking for the perfect conservative, and I think that he has been pretty darn effective at moving the system towards more conservative solutions, even if he does it from a very pragmatic uh, kind of, of background. But, you know, Corker could have said the same thing in 1981 about Ronald Reagan. I mean, we said, I was there. I was, I was a very junior member of Congress and, in the 70s, I campaigned with Reagan, uh, and I served with him for eight years. And, and certainly uh, the, uh, most of us uh, in that generation would, would could be guilty of being part of the cult of Reaganism. Uh, we thought he was amazing. We thought he, he was astonishingly effective, and we thought he was very admirable. So I mean, Trump, you know, Trump's doing something interesting. I'm not sure it's sunk in yet. But you look at what he just did in South Carolina and in Staten Island. He's intervening to win nominations for people who are going to be eternally grateful to him. So he's building a genuine Trump party that didn't exist three years ago. I mean, when he started running in, in the spring of 2015, there was no for no plausible Trump system in this country. Uh, and month by month, he's gradually accruing, uh, you know, people who believe that their future lies with him and people who are grateful to him for what he's doing. And so he's acquiring a level of muscle that would have been literally unthinkable in January of 2015. You're a great lover of space, and you've been advising this White House on uh, on issues regarding space exploration. What is the advocate space? of the moon colony? That's right. We we remember from your presidential campaign your your bold vision about uh, about uh, colonizing the moon. 
what is the Space Force and what can Americans expect out of this as a, as a branch of the armed services in the Trump vision? Well, you, mean, you can imagine how happy I am because I got uh, various people, including Romney and Santorum, attacking me and making fun of me because I actually thought that we had a future in space. Um, and so I'm delighted. Uh, let me say, first of all, this is a place where there's a more complex story because Mike Pence is such a space nut that before he ever won a congressional seat, he would put his family in the car and drive down to Florida to watch rockets go off. So in Pence, you have sort of the perfect guy to chair the National Space Council, um, and he's doing a great job of it, and he is beginning, I think, to really move the system. I think in Bridenstine we have an administrator who is committed to a more dynamic, uh, more exciting future. The, the If you go back and you look, and this is one of the reasons I I find Trump so fascinating, when they had the initial signing of the Space Council, Trump said, we have to get back to thinking big. And he stops and he repeats himself. He said, we don't think big anymore. And then he went off. And and so I I saw Bridenstine the other day. I I went to the users advisory group, sat for five hours listening to smart people talk about different possibilities. I said to Bridenstine, you know, the Space Force is going to be the cavalry, and you're going to organize the wagon trains. Because the, the transition we're making here that's very profound is from a John F. Kennedy who wanted to get to the moon for the purpose of winning the Cold War. I mean, Apollo was really aimed at, at Earth-bound politics. And then after that, we we basically had a very small number of stunningly competent people on very exquisite systems going out to a space station, but basically just hanging around. Trump and Pence actually represent the beginning, as does Elon Musk, you know, as does Jeff Bezos, uh, as does uh, Paul Allen. Uh, these guys are the beginning of actually having pioneers and colonists rather than just explorers. And I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see astonishing things happen. And part of the reason I wrote Trump's America is because a lot of this stuff isn't Trump. I mean, Trump is part of a wave. Bezos, for example, personally writes a check for $1 billion every year to pay engineers to build rockets. Uh, and he has, he has no federal regulations, no congressional oversight, no long-term planning bureaucracy. So he's probably the equivalent of 3 to $5 billion in NASA spending every single year by himself. You know, Paul Allen was the co-founder of Microsoft. He's building the largest airplane in the world. Elon Musk now has launched consistently successful rockets that come back to Earth and are reused, dropping the cost of launching by at least 40%. Uh, and I think conceivably another five or six years, dropping the cost by 90%, which changes everything about how much you can put into space. Hey, uh, before before you go, I uh, just want to do uh, one. We, we can't let you leave without getting your comments on what happened in New York City uh, last night. Uh, we saw Congressman Joe Crowley, uh, possibly the next Speaker of the House, many thought, uh, lose a devastating loss to a 20-year-old, uh, a 28-year-old uh, former Bernie Sanders organizer. Um, what, what, what's your sense? What's going on with the Democratic Party? Well, I think you see this happening everywhere. I mean, you, you, the winner in, uh, in Maryland campaigned on uh, basically the government taking over all health care and running health care. Uh, you've seen, uh, I think, in western Pennsylvania, three members of the Socialist Party won 
primaries for state legislature. Uh, there's a radical wing of the Democratic Party, which is now defeating, this is ironic, they're defeating the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on the grounds that it's not radical enough. Uh, and, they're gonna, and, for example, the, the young lady who won wants to abolish uh, the um, people who are protecting the border. Well, when you get outside of hardcore Democratic districts, I'll let you guess how many places in the country that's going to work. Uh, Feinstein, for reasons, I, Senator Feinstein, for reasons I cannot fathom, introduced an immigration bill and got every single Democratic incumbent to co-sponsor it, which is essentially an open borders bill, which I'm sure they didn't look at in detail. But again, radical staff wrote a bill, which is crazy. And it literally creates an open border for the whole country. Uh, and, those, and those members running for re-election this fall in North Dakota and Montana and Indiana and Missouri, they're never going to be able to defend that bill. Uh, there's no base in this country for an open borders uh, immigration policy, except in very hardcore Democratic radical areas. So I think you're seeing the party do exactly what the Labor Party did under Margaret Thatcher when they, they marched steadily to the left to a point where they eventually were called by the news media the loony left. And I think if you actually put up what these people stand for, um, they're not going to survive except in enclaves uh, that, that have large numbers of, of ethnic support and large amounts of, of radical student, you know, radical professors. I mean, you watch in Minnesota, if Keith Ellison ends up as the Democratic nominee for attorney general, he'll probably take the whole ticket down because Ellison may be acceptable in, in downtown Minneapolis. But the rest of the state is way more conservative than, than Ellison is. Well, uh, we will see. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, uh, sure demonstrated some some energy and excitement. Uh, no doubt a, uh, a, a, a very uh, left agenda as well. Um, she's. We, I guess we can safely say she's going to win that seat, um, and then we'll see if they, you know how much of a remaking of the Democratic Party there is. Um, a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe the, the the Gingrich Revolution, but from a very different uh, perspective. It seems like uh, <laughs> it seems like it's going to be. Just, hey, thank lots. Thank you for joining us uh, all the way from Rome, and um, Glad to do it. we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Speaker Gingrich. It's always fun. Thanks. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, he's got his view on that, but but there is there is some real energy on the progressive left of the Democratic Party, and right now, uh, we, you know, we saw it create some problems uh, for the uh, for the uh, what, what we I guess used to call the Democratic establishment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I think that's good. I think that energy. We'll see where it is in November, but it doesn't seem to be dissipating. Yeah, it doesn't, and uh, it, it, it is a stunning upset in every way. Uh, 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 we remember Eric Kanner. We also remember the Republicans went on to a pretty big 2014 after the Eric Kanner upset, and then, of course, won in 2016 and now control all of yep. Washington, so for whatever it means. I do want to close with just, to my mind, just a, a nice, a sweet moment, a rare moment. We've had this, this week of divisions and anger and people getting kicked out of restaurants and all the rest, uh, but take a listen to this. This is Joe Crowley, uh, just moments after conceding defeat uh, to this virtual unknown, a, a total shocking upset, this is this is what uh, this is what happened at his victory party. This is for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. And that's Crowley on guitar, right? That's right. Who's going to be coming in on the vocals here? Crowley. Oh, okay. <laughs> You'll notice it. So this is not this is not Springsteen. Born to run. And, uh, 
runaway American dream. I, 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 just, I just think that's a nice a moment of grace, a moment of class from a man who just had his career ended in a very embarrassing fashion. He was able to take the stage, congratulate his opponent, endorse her, uh, and pledge to work for her. Uh, it just... I just it, yep, that's it what, almost that, gives me that, chills in, in that is what it is supposed to be all about right. no no doubt no doubt whatsoever all right that is all the time we have right now for powerhouse politics uh, we will be back we may not be back next week it is 4th of July taking, we, 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 we may want to celebrate yeah. uh, American independence uh, in, 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 a, in a special way but we'll see I mean who knows who knows who knows what if can happen uh, but thank you uh, thank you for joining us thank you to the entire powerhouse politics team Uh Avery Miller, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, uh, truly some of the great professionals in this uh, in this world of, uh, of podcasting. So, Rick, uh, if I don't see you until after, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th, my friend. <laughs>